I love the song, Awesome. I think it's an overused word in our culture. But he is a God who inspires awe. And I was thinking, I told the first service, I was thinking about he's awesome, he can move the mountains. Well, sometimes that's not as impressive as it should be, but he's the one that made the mountains. <laughs> and I don't know what's harder, but I think maybe angels might move mountains, but I think it takes God to make a mountain. And he can, anything he needs to create in your life, he's got the power to do. Hey, well, we're going to talk to you this morning, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm just glad everybody is here this morning. Um, actually, there's no place I'd rather be. It's fun. I, I, this is a joy. I don't know. I just, we're going to talk this morning, though, on fifth message in our series, recalling uh, truth in the face of falsehood, about reminders. And through the series so far, you've heard Peter's reminders that we have a sure faith. He said, next, we have a sure word. We have a sure word. It's trustworthy. It will never fail. We have a sure warning, and he's told us that false teachers are going to come and try to distort this sure word and lead people astray. We heard last week from Pastor Matthew about a sure promise. Jesus is coming again. Yes. Now, for us, we say, hallelujah. But I think for some and the false teachers, it won't be such a pleasant day. Well, as we uh, condi uh, continue today, Jude where I'll be starting, has some reminders for us again in the same vein as Second Peter. And he's going to remind us about the danger, the ultimate doom, and the defense against the false teachers that might rise up even today. Um, we're uh, sure that because of the sure instruction he's giving us in the book of Jude, a sure defense that we will be able to resist, identify, and withstand those false teachers and stand firm till the end. And you know there are plenty of false messages out there, are there not? Well, let's pray. Father, I just ask your Spirit's help this morning that you would remove me from the equation today, but your Spirit and your power and your word would go forth and penetrate each of our hearts in such a way that you would allow us to be changed forever, starting today. Would you give us today and let us apply your sure reminder of your sure instruction of how to withstand and identify the false teachers that might come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning our text is Jude and is found at page 866 of your pew Bible. Now, I'm going to be reading specific passages through the morning because I don't have time to read this whole piece from 1 to 21. I would love to. 
Um, but when we actually jump into a verse, I want your Bible to already be open so that you can follow along with me. At a high level, you'll see that Jude's letter, a one-chapter book, now if anybody reads a book of the Bible, if they better read Jude, right? I mean, that's, the sh that's small. You ought to be able to finish that and, and tell someone, I've read a book of the Bible, yes. But it's a short book, and it has several parts or themes to it. Uh, the first one is his greeting in verses 1 and 2, his purpose for writing in verses 3 and 4, uh, his warning and uh, evident, eminent doom of false teachers in verses 5 to 16, and his instructions to keep us from those false teachers in verses 17 to 21. Now, Pastor Larry is going to wrap up uh, the book of Jude uh, next week, and it will also wrap up our series and today, I want to, even though the primary focus of my message is going to center on God's instructions to us that we might stand firm, keep in the love of God, and resist these false teachers, the book is too rich to skip over everything so quickly. So I want to bring out just a couple nuggets along the way, and hopefully you'll uh, appreciate these messages in your life today. Um, Greetings. Why would I spend any time on Jude's greeting? I think it tells us a lot. Um, are greetings important? Well, I can recall a greeting that I received my very first day at PG&E. I was a brand new engineer right out of college. Yes, I was 21 years old at one time, and uh, I can remember it, so it's not that far. Um, but I walked into the office, and I met another engineer who had been hired several months before me. And I'll just call her Doris. And she walked up to me, extended her hand, and said, Hi, I'm Doris. I went to Stanford. My family came over on the Mayflower. I don't know exactly what I was supposed to do with that. Um, Hi, I'm Tim. I went to Fresno State, and I'm nobody. I but you can tell that humility was not her focus. So let's look how Jude introduced himself. Let's read verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Well, look how he introduced himself. Now, first, you have to understand that Jude is just probably an Anglicized version of a Greek word for Judas. Now, anybody named Judas at this time in the early church was probably looked at a little harder, and you might want to distance himself from that name, and maybe in his intro he wanted to try to prop up his uh, reputation here a little bit. And so what would he do to do that? Well, he was the half-brother of Jesus, along with James, as he said, and his brother. And so as we look at this, he says, well, his first identity was a servant of Jesus Christ. His second identity was brother of James. Now, if it was me, and I was worried about my name and my reputation, I might lead with, hi, I'm related to deity. Jesus is my brother. Who are you? Okay, he didn't choose that approach. When you introduce yourself, is the title servant of Jesus Christ enough 
for you? Or do you need pastor, elder, supervisor, manager? What identifies you? I'm just amazed and impressed that this man, just like James, how he introduced his book, they start off, James, a servant. Jude, a servant. Is that name good enough for you? It should be. I think it's an illustrious name to be servant of the king. But as you look at these titles, you know, I, I just think that his second piece was he wanted to affirm his audience. If you look at that, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus, I am just, I'm appreciative of how he loved the people he was writing to. Obviously, there were believers. It doesn't say where. But he was trying to convince them of something. I've got a harder message coming. But before I get to that harder message, I want you to remember some things. You are called. If you're in this family, you didn't self-elect. You were called by God the Father. You were put in this family by a calling. Every one of you who know Jesus today didn't get here on your own. You were called. And he wanted them to remember, hey, don't forget, you are precious and known to God and you were called. The second thing he said is you are loved by God the Father. And this is more, I think, than when he said, and God so loved the world. Indeed, God does love the whole world. But Jesus was trying to communicate something to his disciples when he was teaching them to pray. And he says, ask in my name. And he says, by the way, you got to know something about the Father now because I came. And he says this. It's really a great verse in John 16, verse 27. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Did you know that we are loved in a special and intimate way? Not just like God loves the world, but he's reminding his audience, you are not only called, but today you are loved in a special, intimate, real way because we trust in Jesus. Not because of who we are, because of our name, because of our college. He loves you because he loves his son and we are in his son. And he loves us now. Not because we ask Jesus to tell him to love us. He sees that we love his son and he loves us. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And it says we have been kept for Jesus Christ. I just think about that. God, he's promising him, in the past you were called, in the present you are loved, and in the future you will be kept. Now who would you rather be kept by? Is there anyone more powerful than God who can keep you? Paul said it this way, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep, to guard that which I have entrusted to him against that day. Do you trust him to keep what's for you on that day? Jesus even described in another passage that he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And my father who has given to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So when you're in Jesus' hand and in the father's hand on top, who's going to get you? So as I start this letter, no matter what I might make you afraid of about false teachers or anything, please know you were called, you're intimately loved, and you will be kept. Just to start off. That's just my opener. Okay, I just, that's not really the message. But I, I, it was too good to leave. 
You got to know right now, church, you are being kept by Almighty God. No one less. No one less. So let's go here. What did he say the purpose of his letter was? Verse 3. Dear friends, beloved. He's really intimate with this crowd. Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. That's interesting to me. Um, he found himself hijacked. He wanted to write a beautiful, wonderful, uplifting letter about our salvation. And the Spirit checked him. And he says, wait a minute. The danger is so real, so imminent, so important. I'm going to change your message. Has you ever been hijacked in what you wanted to do by God? You really wanted to do this, and now you have to do this? This, this is, I love this, because he said, you know, I'd much rather write about fun stuff. Wouldn't we rather do fun stuff in life? But God gives us the ability to do what's necessary and what's important and what's needful. But he said, hey, I'm going to warn you instead, and I'm going to say that you need to, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to strongly encourage you. I'm going to ask you to contend for the faith. Now, what does that mean? What's contend? We don't use that word very much. We think about a contender. He's not a contender. I, I don't know. That's not the same word here. A contending means to exert great effort, to intensely fight for, uh, to earnestly struggle, even agonize to achieve. So when he tells us, contend for the faith, he's not saying, hey, I got my Bible, that's good. He says, no, be ready to struggle, to fight, to even agonize over preserving the truth of this message. Now, what is the faith? The faith is not your faith, my faith. It's not subjective. Um, it's the faith. It's what's being delivered by the apostles. It's what God's holy word is. This is the faith. What we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ and of salvation, that is the faith. Now, he says we need to fight to preserve that. And it's interesting that he also says it was once for all entrusted. If anyone ever comes to you and says, I have a new word, I have something that can be added to this salvation thing you're talking about, that's to be rejected immediately. There is no such thing as a new word. There will never be a such thing as a new word. We have a word once for all delivered. You can rest on this. It won't be updated. There won't be a new version. There won't be, you know, episode two. This is it. This is it. Now, it's interesting, too, that he uses another thing that I think is precious, and we have to catch it. Now, we're not defending the word that's up here on the platform and that we come to church to defend it. He says it's entrusted to the holy people or to the saints. What is an entrustment? What did we trust? It means that we... I hand you something in trust. God has given this and entrusted it to us to defend, to protect, to preserve, to know, to believe, to trust. It's been entrusted to us. Now, I know some of you probably drive a rental car a little differently than you might drive your own. But I'm, I'm almost positive that even you, if you borrowed somebody you really respected and you're borrowing his shiny new car, 
you're going to be a little more careful with it so you don't return it with dents and scratches and messes and you're trying to take care of that trust that you were given. God says this is one of the most precious things in the world. In fact, it's one that's the only one's going to last forever but me and I want you to preserve it and protect it. In fact, even agonize over doing it. Is that what we're doing? Do we agonize over making sure we know this and protect it? Let's move on. Why is he saying this right now? Well, in verse 4, he says this. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. So why is this message important then, and why is it still important now? Because just like Larry spoke to us about from 2 Peter chapter 2, and as Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 15, there would be false teachers coming who would mislead, who would distort, who would want to destroy God's flock like ravenous wolves among the sheep. And Jude is warning us not that they're coming. He's saying, they're here. They're here. Do you think they could be here in Valley Bible Church even today? Absolutely. What would make us immune? Do you think they're only coming to places that are weak? I think actually it's the opposite. Satan doesn't have to oppose people who are out of the game. He has to oppose those that want to live for God. If we want to preach and say this is Valley Bible Church, I would expect the greater attack on the Bible to come here, not to come to some church that doesn't even believe the Bible. Are we ready for the attack? Because it says that these people are sly. They don't come in and say, hey, by the way, I'm a false teacher, and I'm here to lead you astray. <laughs> come see me. No, they are undercover. Now, the question here is, sometimes that might worry us. We might say, gosh, I don't even know how to figure out whether they're here or not. Because undercover attacks, Jude knows, are more dangerous than outer attacks. We've heard about that in the sermons before. See, destruction from the inside is far more deadly. You can see, have anybody ever seen a tree that looked as healthy as can be, but in a windstorm it just went over, and you found out later the inside had been eaten out by termites or bugs? It looked perfect. It just looked, looked like all the other ones, but it was dead. See, this is what can happen from a church that there's someone who might be even dead in the middle that's going to try to eat the inside out of the church. And he's warning us, be on guard. Now, the question is, is Judas, huh, I, I'm still amazed. Every time I read about Judas, I'm amazed. You had a man who we now have learned over time was one of the most rebellious, scoundrel uh, traitors that have, has, has ever existed. Jesus said, woe to the man who, just, who uh, betrays the Son of Man. Well, this guy, who was he though? Was he out in the crowds and didn't really care about Jesus? No. Was he in the religious community and opposed to Jesus and that's why he was against him? No. 
Well, maybe he was part of the multitude that always listened to him and loved what he said. No, he was in the leadership group that surrounded him. He was in the disciple group. And the amazing thing is the other disciples did not know. According to what I read in Scripture, they never had a clue that Judas was going to do what he did. In fact, even Jesus, at the night of the Last Supper, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they said, who, 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 who? And he goes, it's the one that I hand the bread to. And they still didn't get it. He looked so good, right? He fit right in. He knew the jargon. He followed Jesus. But his insides were dead. And they could be right here. So the question is, is what should we look for? Now, what's our defense? Well, God's given us a couple defenses. One, I think, happens to be what Jesus said. These ravenous wolves that are going to come in among you, you will know them by their fruit. Even if they are wolves in sheep's clothing, I've heard, I think, from our Pastor Phil before, they will still leave wolf prints. If you track them, they'll be prints of a wolf. But he leaves, he gives us verses from basically 4 through 16, and I don't have time to go through this, and I encourage you to look through this. But these are what I would call red flags, telltale marks, fruit of a false teacher that we should be on guard for. We're, we're not really going to become experts today. I'm going to go through the list quickly, but I want you to see the types of things you should expect. It says there, verse 4, godless men who use God's grace to promote immorality. They're going to use the Bible to promote sin. They're going to say, hey, God forgives you anyway, so go ahead and sin. They're going to deny that Jesus Christ is very God and rightful Lord of our life. They're going to say, yeah, yeah, he came, all right, but we don't have to obey him. We don't have to listen. They're going to be dreamers. And this doesn't mean visionaries. This means people who use their dreams as a reason to mislead people. This is what God said to me in my dream. We've got to go a different direction. They're known to be immoral. They're known to live in sin and thus reject God's moral requirements. They're going to flaunt God's laws right to God, and they don't care. They're going to slander and blaspheme heavenly things in verse 8. In verse 11, he says they're going to be like Cain. What was Cain? Cain was religious, but disobedient. Do you know anybody that's religious, but disobedient? They go to church all the time, but their life doesn't change a whit, and they live like the devil during the other days. They're religious to the core, but they have no true faith inside. How about they're like Balaam, a man who will sin if you pay him. That's what some of these men are going to be like. They're paid to sin. They have pride and rebelliousness of Korah. They'll oppose God's leadership. If you see people who don't do what Hebrews 13, 17 says and submit to your leaders, but rebels against leadership, this is the sign of someone you need to be careful about. Hidden reefs, it says blemishes at church gatherings. I, I love this. It says they fit in. They fit in at church gatherings, but they're dangerous and they're invisibly dangerous. You don't even see the hidden reef that the ship might sail over and take the bottom out. I'll just go quickly. They're shepherds who don't feed the flock but only feed themselves. They really feed off the sheep and the flock rather than feed the flock. So they're, they're, they're people who love lamb chops. 
And I'm not talking about the meat. I'm talking about you. They produce no benefit. They're clouds without rain. They produce no fruit in others and they're dead. They're twice dead trees. There's lots of activity with no benefit. They're waves of sea that produce only foam. They're unreliable guides. Ever try to track a wandering star and navigate from it? The North Star is a good navigational star because it never moves. If you have a wandering star, you can't guide your life by that at all. It says they're grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires, verse 16. They're boastful. They talk about themselves, not Jesus. They're flatterers. They use words to manipulate. Have you seen anybody like that on TV in the last 10 years? I have. I don't need to name names. But these people are out there. Are we on our guard? Do we know the counterfeit from the real? Well, Jude says there's so many looks and there's so many marks, but there's something I can do for you here. And he says, do not lose heart. I'm telling you, you can be kept even in the face of false teachers. And I'm so glad. Begin verse 20 and 21, he gets to his real point. He says, in the light and the reality of false teachers, of charlatans for money. Um, we even have distorters of the truth, which could be in this room today. And we know what their doom is going to be. We know that we don't have to punish these people. God has already reserved the blackest darkness for these people. God's already got their doom figured out. But how do we as a flock protect ourselves? Well, he gives us the rules and instructions here. So, I think the sure instruction, the sure defense is given in verse 20 and 21. Let's read. But you, dear friends, beloved again, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Well, I just need to do a little something because I had to learn to do this. Uh, the, the construction of this verse is a little different than normal English. In fact, there's only one verb in the original Greek and three participles, which means they support the one verb. And I know we don't need an English lesson, but the primary verb in this sentence is actually keep yourself in God's love. And how do we do that? We do that by building yourselves up, by holy and praying yourselves in the Holy Spirit and waiting for Jesus Christ. So what we want to do is cover these things and break it apart a little bit. And so how can we keep ourselves in God lo God's love and how can we defend against people who could be right next to us and we don't even know it? How do we do that? Well, keeping ourselves in God's love. It's first and foremost, it's got to be evident to you that it says, keep yourself. This is not something that your parents can do for you. This is not something your pastor is going to do for you. This is not something your church friends will do for you. God is expecting you to do this for yourself. So do I have everybody's attention that I'm talking to you? You have an instruction and a command from the Lord here. He says, keep yourself in God's love. Now, what does in God's love even mean? You could say, well, I know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean being good enough so God will keep loving you. Earn God's love. Keep doing the right thing so he'll keep loving you. That is not what this means. What, see, God's love is unconditionally eternal, right? 
He loves sinners, right? But the point here is you could love God and know God but not be next to God. Okay, and I think what he's talking about simply here is we just want to strive to be in this loving relationship with our Heavenly Father that He loves us, we show that we love Him back, that we're working to, to see that we stay next to His heart, that we are hearing His voice, that we're responding to Him. It's a relationship. See, we could be Christians and fuss, can't we? Can we be maybe even mean to our spouse, saying an unkind word? Is that possible? Okay, when we are doing that, is God going to bless that unkind word? No. Okay, that's demonstrating that we know God and love God, but we haven't acted like it. We're not pursuing him in that moment. And all he's saying is, remember to stay pursuing God's love in this relationship. Keep yourself there. And he gives us three practical things that we can do. Now, keeping yourself requires effort, doesn't it? Okay. Do, do you automatically keep yourself if you don't do anything? No, you don't. This takes. This is a command. He wouldn't give it to you if there wasn't anything to do. You need to work at this. So now, one of the ways we know we can stay in the love of God and demonstrate that we love Him is just simply by obeying Him, right? Those who love me will obey me. It's pretty simple. Uh, but I think this is more than this. The three practical things he gives us here are really things that will help keep us close to God. And what are those three things? Those are the things in verse 20 and 21. He says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, and wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we do these things, it will keep us close and in the love of God. That's how, we, that's how this is constructed. So what are they? Well, what does it mean to build yourself up in your most holy faith? Well, let's just break it down again. Faith, again, is not your faith. This is not your personal faith in God. This is, again, the faith. Build yourself up in the faith. God's Word delivered to you. Now, and it was once for all delivered. So you don't have to worry about it changing. If you master it, you'll have it. Right? It's not like keeping up with a manual on something that, you know, I, I knew Windows 7, but I don't know Windows 10. It's not like that. But here, it's we must master and build ourselves up in the faith. But it says it's your faith, your most holy faith, because it was entrusted to you. Do you understand that? You have been entrusted by God with his word. What are you doing with it? If you were entrusted with money or with resources, would you protect it? This needs no less but greater protection. And it says your most holy faith. I love this. Now, we're not talking about pious here. What we're talking about, yes, God's faith, the faith in God is pure and reasonable but it's also completely set apart. It's one of a kind. It's unique. This is the only faith that has life and eternity-changing power. You get it? This is most holy. 
This, this is most like God, and it's most unique, and it's set apart. We've got to understand that when we hold a Bible, we hold a unique book. Do you understand? So now, what about it? Build ourselves up in it. Well, a lot of you think that building uh, yourself up in it takes no effort. But I would say, even in the light of the steroid era, if, a, if an athlete bodybuilder injected himself with steroids, do muscles just pop out, or does he still need to lift weights? So let's take chemicals out of this for a minute. Building muscles takes effort. And he says, build yourself up. Exert effort. What do you mean, exert effort? I don't want to exert effort. Um, I want to sit in my lazy boy and get muscles. You can see how it's done for me. Yeah, don't follow my example. Um, because building ourselves up takes work. But is it really the job of only the pastor? Well, Paul wrote in Ephesians... Christ gave himself the Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. We're just the people handing you the weights. You're the ones doing the exercise. Right? So if you're going to build yourself up, what he says, if you build yourself up in this word and you study it, you apply it. Um, I, I'm just worried, quite frankly, that some of us try to speed read God's word, check a box on our Bible reading plan, and think I've built myself up in the word. I don't think it works that way. I don't think God's going to be very impressed with us if we show up, hey, Lord, guess what? I read through the Bible 75 times in my lifetime. The question he might ask you is, did you apply any of it? Did you understand any of it? Did you build yourself up in it? Okay, that's our question. So I think what I'm just going to plead with you, don't just read your Bible, study it, learn it, apply it. Then it says that when you do that, you will keep yourself in not only God's love, but you will protect yourself being able to identify anything that's counterfeit and different from this. Because you're so familiar with this, no one can sneak one in on you. That's what this is about. Do you want to be protected? Then know his word. What is even the proverb? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin it's hard to obey a command you don't know well this next one he says pray in the Holy Spirit now let's be clear on this one he's not talking about method he's not talking about whether you pray in tongues or not he's not talking about whether you're on your knees or in public or in private what he's saying first and foremost here and I know absolutely I'm right he says to pray Let's forget the modifier for a minute. Pray. So how are we doing in staying close to the love of God? Are we praying? When you pray, you're connecting with your heavenly Father and saying, I am dependent on you, Father. 
I need you. I want you in my life. I want to hear your voice. I want to know where to go. I need your help in solving these problems. When we do that, we draw close to him. And we're defended. Well, but let's just say here, what is praying in the Holy Spirit, though? Well, I don't think it's all that hard. I think the first thing it says is we must be first indwelt by his Spirit to pray in the Spirit. We must be saved. If you don't have the Spirit of God, there's no praying in the Spirit for you. So the first thing he would say by saying pray in the Spirit is be saved. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept his free gift. And God will give you his Holy Spirit as an indwelling comforter and guide that will seal you until he takes you home. But you must have the Spirit to be a praying in the Spirit person. What else would you need to do? I think it is to be walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. We're not talking about complicated things here. He said, when it says, be filled with the Spirit, we've got to understand he's not telling you to do something hard. He's saying, allow yourself to let God fill you and control you by his Spirit. He's saying, get your hands off the steering wheel and let the Spirit drive. That's all he's saying. He's not saying, do something to work up the Spirit in you. See, the Holy Spirit, please remember people, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, right? And when you get the Holy Spirit, you don't get a thing, you get a person. And the person who's dwelling in you just needs access to your control panel. And when he's driving, his motivations are supreme. When he's driving, his actions come out of your mouth. When he's driving, your reactions and responses to critical situations are his. That's all he's saying here. When you're praying, do that. Let him be in control. And the third thing he's saying is pray according to the Spirit's will and to God's will. Are we praying God's priorities? To pray in the Spirit simply means be saved, have the Spirit, be controlled, don't grieve or quench the Spirit, let the Spirit drive, and be close to him and pray what God would pray for. What is the Spirit's will? I think some of the things we pray for people are not really high on God's priority list. Now, please don't get me wrong. Is God concerned about the most tiniest things that cause you grief and heartache in your life? You bet. He knows you intimately, and he knows the things that maybe bother you and no one else, and he cares. But he also has an agenda for this world. Does he not? He has a purpose. He wants to conform us to the image of his son. If you're praying to be conformed to the image of his son, help me surrender, Lord, to you today that I may look more like Jesus. Do you think he'd want to answer that question, that prayer? You bet. Help me love people like you do. I mean, what are we praying for? So praying in the spirit is not hard. Any Christian can do it. You don't need to be a master's degree person to pray in the spirit. You don't need to be a Pentecostal to pray in the spirit. You just need to know Jesus and follow his lead. Well, what's the third thing? Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Well, wait a minute. Some of you might be saying, I thought we already had eternal life. Well, watch the verse. It says, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Yeah, we do have eternal life. We were given eternal life when we were saved. Absolutely. Jesus promised it, John 3.16. But he's also saying, and Jude's reflecting this, that believers have a past, a present, and a future. In the past, we were saved. 
from the penalty of our sin. It was wiped away. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It happened in a moment. But does that sin nature still abide with us as we live here? You betcha. And now we are being preserved from the power of sin and our present salvation is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you're going through life and you still need to be dependent upon him and our salvation is still in process. But he says even here that our salvation has a future. There's one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. We will be given new bodies that will be transported to be in his presence for eternity. You got it? We're going to be eternally in heaven with him and that eternal life we're going to be brought to. Uh, everyone in this room, whether we go now or by Jesus' return, we are going to be put in his presence with eternal life forever. Forever. Now, this is it. But that's not the key here. His key verb is wait for this. Are we eagerly anticipating this? Are you looking forward to this? Are you living your life with eternity in view? Are you, if Jesus came, if you knew Jesus was coming back today at 7.47 p.m. for sure, would any of your plans for the day change? In fact, he might be saying, there's an announcement coming later in this service, and he might say, you know what, you don't need to sweat that announcement. Uh, the chief shepherd's going to be back before you need that announcement. If we knew that, it would change everything, right? And we're supposed to be living every day, waiting, anticipating, not waiting like you're waiting for a root canal or waiting for your tax audit. You're waiting with anticipation of having eternal life with Christ forever, and it could be any moment. Yeah. Any moment. If you're living with the any moment attitude, Jude tells us through the Holy Spirit that you will be brought in keeping and close to God's love. Because you're looking with his priorities, his future, his purposes in mind. So now, by building yourself up, by praying in the Holy Spirit, by having your eyes set on a future that's going to be inevitable. If I'm knowing that Jesus is coming back today, I'm telling you, friend, I'm living different. Now, we know we have to plan. We're supposed to be like the ten virgins, that, that we have to plan for the future. It could be in 50 years or 500 years, but I should live like it could be any moment. Any moment. Now, this is interesting to me. In a world full of false messages, I'm thankful that God has given us a way by a sure command, a sure instruction, a sure defense, that if we do these things, if you will build yourself up in your most holy faith, in the word of God, you work at it. You actually, according to contend for the faith in verse, in the first verse, verse three, contend, that means work to the point of even agonizing over doing it. That's what they tell you, no pain, no gain, right? When you work on your muscles, if you're only working them and it doesn't ever hurt, you're probably not growing them too much. This is a sense of contend for the faith. Exert the effort. If we're praying I'm going to stop almost there. If you were just praying, I'm, con I'm con convinced that this would change your life. But he says, by praying in the Holy Spirit, knowing you're indwelt by his, the third person of the Godhead, that you're under the control of the Spirit, and that you are now praying his will, you are going to be drawn to God's heart. What does he want? How can I be close to him? And then, if you're waiting with eager anticipation, 
God says, by the authority of his word, each of us will be kept in the love of God. And each of us will have a sure defense against false teachers. And we will never fall. Ever. That's what I want to say. We will never fall. God bless you. Father, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful that you gave us something so simple. Even the weakest, the newest, the babiest, the least uh, strengthened Christian has the ability to do what you've asked. You've said, if we will keep ourselves in the love of God by building up our most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, and by waiting for the mercy of our Lord to bring us to eternal life, we will never fall. I'm thankful for your promise. Father, help us to be a discerning church. Help us to be a loving church. Help us to be a doing church that doesn't just speed read your word. We apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.